You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast, new and improved now with 20% more emphasis on the introduction. Welcome back to the show, the one and only Abby. Thank you so much. You know, I, I was I was expecting a colorful introduction after the 20% in, uh, improved here. I meant 20% more efficient. I was going to just take 20% off, off of the intro. <laughs> Well, hopefully it's still, it's still as entertaining to all the listeners. How's it going, buddy? Uh, you know what? It's it's going okay. Um, it's been a really interesting few days of thinking and digesting and taking in these earnings reports that you know we will eventually do a deep dive on. Um, but you know, I had a conversation earlier today, um, and really, what the idea that kind of came back and and um, was emphasized in my mind is that, you know, I really think we are in a golden age of cannabis investing. Uh, and, and we did an episode of a similar title about 10 months ago. So last, uh, last fall. And I think we are in a bit of a perfect storm right now with these companies and these stocks. And I want to drive that point home today and discuss that. Yeah, for sure. And when, and when you're saying golden age of cannabis investing, like you're saying, you're seeing buying opportunities sort of persist right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I think anybody who looks at a chart, right, everyone who's feeling the pain, right, of of their stocks being down would say, yeah, sure. I mean, the stocks are down. That's a great opportunity. But I think when we dig into the why, I think that's what really excites me. And then when we dig mm-hmm. into the specific opportunities, and today we're really going to focus on Verano and TrueLeave. Uh, which are not, you know, new names by any stretch of the imagination. They're names we've talked about many times. Mm-hmm. But when we actually dig into what's happening with those two companies, where the numbers are, where the valuations are, I think you're going to step away saying, you know, this is a hell of an opportunity. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I mean, look, both the names that you just mentioned right there are top tier MSOs, right? And so mm-hmm. um, I feel gold, the golden age of cannabis is is a great title because, you know, we did talk about it before, but now we look at it. Um, you know, we always talk about the decoupling of fundamentals of prices that has never been further or sorry, that has never been more the case than, than right now. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I've, I'm excited. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So basically we're going to go back to, I think the episode was number 63, which is, you know, the golden age of, of cannabis investing. And, And this is basically a continued, right. And comes to a theme of ours that, a lot of what we're seeing is not really new. Uh, and, you know, to borrow a quote from Ben Kovler, who's borrowing a quote from Mark Twain, um, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Okay. So mm-hmm. today we're rhyming with our previous episode. And it's funny to see how, you know, much of that will apply today, just with a different context. Okay. So, the agenda basically is to discuss what makes a golden age and what makes it a good opportunity. And the first point is that from a con- from a timing um, a- a standpoint, you actually never know you're in a golden age until you're out of it, 
right? It's only in hindsight that you look back and say, wow, what a great opportunity that was. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're going to go through just, just the key tenets of what makes the golden age. And, and ultimately, it comes down to a couple of things. A lack of capital, a lack of understanding and conviction, um, you know, being in a highly fragmented market for information, uh, and just being in an inefficient market, period. And I think those are really the core tenets of, of what creates an inefficient market and then what makes mm-hmm. that a good investing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and, and that makes sense. So there's a lot of constraints there from the capital perspective, uh, fragmentation and inefficiencies. The one point that you know I really like that you highlighted here was a lack of understanding. Right, that I feel is the hardest thing to to really look into because how you interpret data versus how somebody else interprets data could be very different, uh, and you can come into to, to very different conclusions. And like we talked about last episode, the data is not always there. Right, you yeah. don't you don't even know where to look for the data. You know, pointing case in point, like. The Florida competition thing, which has been going on for, you know, probably eight to 10 weeks now, uh, you know, I just happened to kind of stumble upon it uh, because I've, I found this great dispensary uh, sale tracking site. We shared that in the last episode, the link, um, you know, you can he- kind of hear the analysts start to clue in a little bit about it. Uh, but like the companies themselves, like, I, like, I bet you if I found out about this eight weeks ago, that truly found f- figured out that this was coming eight months ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, their access to data is probably, uh, you know, top tier, especially in their home market of Florida. And I'm sure they exploit that edge however they can to stay ahead of the curve. For sure. And I mean, look, using Trulia as an example in that specific like Florida market. Um, some of that data, even with Truly, they don't they don't get it live either. Right. Like they are participating in that data as well. Mm hmm. So that's the only way that they would find out. They would start realizing, oh, hey, we know we've, we're 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 throwing more incentives to attract the same amount of sales, and it yeah. will take a while for that mm-hmm. to trickle down to guys well, like us. Yeah, and and I bet you, you know, I'm I'm calling them out specifically because we're gonna, you know, we've got a lot to talk about today with with Truly and you know the trial results and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it, it is a really top tier operational and strategic team, and I bet you they have mapped out when they look at the market who's got what square footage coming online. And something tells me they probably would have known that with all the cultivation capacity coming online at this time, mm-hmm. this was coming, right? And and so that's why I'm, in particular, I'm, I'm kind of pointing them out because there is that gap of information. But the, you can never rely on the company to turn around and tell you, hey guys, by the way, we think there's going to be a lot of pricing pressure coming up in six right. months, right? They're never going to give you that negative information. You have to go find that yourself. Right. Right. And uh, so, you know, to your point, which will kick off with this lack of understanding, lack of information, even knowing where to look for the information, um, you know, how many truly investors were this is uh, Monday night, by the way, August 16th, and it'll get released Wednesday. Uh, but how many investors were maybe blindsided to wake up and see their truly stock down six or seven percent? Right. And the reason for that kind of uh, unquestionably was the fact that Friday after close, we got the court case verdict um, right. that JT Burnett, who's Kim Rivers' husband, was found guilty. Um, now, he's found not guilty on some charges, but he was found guilty of other charges. And I'm not going to go through the list, but uh, it's not a positive, right? I mean, this is clearly, mm-hmm. clearly mm-hmm. a negative. And it's something that was out in the open for a long time, right? And it's, yeah, and it was looming over the stock for, for years. Yeah, yeah, maybe, right? I, I mean, it was definitely out there. But, um, you know, we always try to keep our finger on the pulse of what we think is happening in terms of 
not only the fundamentals and the footprint and assets and state by state, but also has the market figured out kind of potential risks for the stock and priced them in, right? And my point for a long time, you know, going back almost two years now, um, but but you know, really in in kind of Feb or March, I was very much worried about the fact that the trial was supposed to take place in April, but got pushed because of COVID several times. Um, I was worried about the fact that I didn't think that people a even knew about it. Mm-hmm. Um, or B understood really the links to the company that could have been drawn, mm-hmm. perceived or real. Um, and so, you know, this negative result, this negative outcome um, that happened, if you, you know, look at your stock and you were sort of surprised, I kind of have to ask you, like, you know, why, right? Why were you not um, aware of this happening, right? It's not or like how were you not aware of this happening? Yeah, it's not like it was a secret, right? But uh, but at the same time, it's not like it was volunteered either. You did have to go digging a little bit for it. Um, and, you know, I remember the first time I find out found out about it, it was really random. It was kind of, you know, hearing somebody mention it or seeing it in a comment or something and then going digging, right? Mm-hmm. And finding it for myself and having that moment of like, oh, crap, like, how did I not know this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And that that feeling of shock and surprise and feeling kind of stupid um, that was a really good learning experience and certainly certainly not the last time I felt stupid, but. <laughs> but that was also like two years ago. That was probably about two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was in 2019. I remember when, when you were first doing the, the, the dive into Florida, you're like, oh, things are going great. Things are going great. This company truly is going to be massive. Oh, but by the way, like this is also a looming risk, right? And at the time there was a several looming risks, right? There, there was, hey, the, the Supreme Court might break up vertical integration, mm-hmm. right? Well, no, that there, didn't come till after. Uh, I think that was in late 19 or something like that. But I, I, I just remember pointing out that there was like three different things that were out yeah. there, right? Well, I just, I always remembered when you first talked about Trulieve, it was, mm-hmm. you know, her husband is getting indicted by the DOJ and there's a, like a, a recording, right? And I don't think we'd heard the recording or you'd heard the recording at that time. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know about the recording. I just know that I'd read enough. Like I, I, when I found out about it, my next thing was, okay, how do I find out everything I can about this? Right. Right. And I spent like hours reading like all these articles about like what the case was and what was, what was being brought from the case and all this stuff. Right. And my takeaway was, this seems pretty serious. Mm -hmm. Right. When you have, you know, and so going back to like kind of the, so now I want to be clear here. This has created a real opportunity in the stock of Trulief. Okay. This is a top tier operational company um, that is undergoing some pretty huge transformation with M&A, but will continue to be an absolute earnings monster. Um, and I've been out of the stock you know, for a while now since I dumped it back in March and it kind of eluded me. And now is really a good time to re-examine getting back in. Okay. Because ultimately um, what's, what's attractive and interesting to me is top quality companies mm-hmm. that for some reason um, you know, investors sell or get out of the way and they start trading at a really value um, multiple despite being a top quality company. Right, right. And do you think that even with this, like the correction that it's had so far uh, or the pullback that it's had so far that this risk has been priced out? Well, so so we'll get into this a little bit later, but you know, I'll run you through my numbers and kind of how I'm thinking about it. But I think a, a key thing, you know, going... Going into the trial, I was concerned, um, and I said, "Look, I don't think people have priced in what this actually means, right? right? Because 
I think there is a tendency, A, to overlook any negatives, and B, there is a tendency to be in this echo chamber of you know Twitter or Reddit or whatever, where you only hear positive things um, and you self-select the positive things you want to hear, right? And human nature, we all do it. Learn this the hard way, right? Mm -hmm. I went through this um, and, and we certainly, you know, Abby, you and I have the battle scars from the 17, 18, 19 investing cycle where uh, we got really, really humbled and, and uh, maybe should have spent more time listening to the negatives of the companies we were investing in, right? Yeah. So, or looking for the negatives. <laughs> yes. I don't, I don't think anybody was talking about the negatives back then, right? I mean, look, I'm sure people, I'm sure they're out there, right? But um, we've talked about this before. There's not a huge incentive for people to talk about the negatives unless they're out there trying right. to short the stock, right? Right. And and by the way, people have now, you know, in, in the era post GameStop, anything negative is you're a short seller, right? Like any <laughs> concern you have of the company, yeah. you know, all right, well, how many shares have you shorted? You know, like tell, you know, like, whereas like if you say something positive, but incorrect, something completely wrong, but incorrect. Nobody goes, nobody says the opposite, right? Nobody goes, <laughs> oh, you're just saying that because you're long the company. How many shares do you own? Like, yeah, there's this asymmetric thing where people hate anybody sh who are short the stock or perceived to be short and they love everyone who's agreeing with them. Right. So again, clear fragmentation and, and you know, there, there's a lack of um, good information out there, I guess is my point. So the, a lot of this rhymes with the stuff that we saw in 2019. And we saw in 2019 exuberance turned to depression. And a lot of that feels like it's being repeated again today. Okay. Exuberance turned into depression. It, feel, it feels like it's being repeated today. I, I, I would have to disagree. Okay. Um, I just honestly think that, again, I, I you know, this is kind of my theory. I, I, I talked to you about this back in, I think, even January and February. Uh, I just think that the world is now opening back up. And people are distracted and they're mm -hmm. not as fixated on stock prices or trading as much as they used to. Right. Yeah, it's totally true. And, you know, we are seeing good numbers. Like, you know, th this was probably one of the better earnings reports, if not the best earnings reports that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Right. The prices haven't moved at all. And I think it's just there because the market hasn't really digested or ha had the time to digest this, all this information. Because people are, I still think people are still sitting on large capital gains. I think people are now going on a lot of big, like, on a lot large, like, like more extravagant vacations, I would say, mm -hmm. right? Like I talked to like my group of friends and they're no longer just going, you know, in Toronto, we go to Mexico quite a bit. They're no longer going to Mexico. They're trying to go somewhere else, right? They'll, they'll mm -hmm. go to like Calgary or so somewhere domestic, but like somewhere real stay, fancy, like Calgary. Well, no, they'll, they'll stay at <laughs> like a, a, a much nicer hotel or something. The right? big baller squad. Yeah. In Calgary. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, Calgary's really nice. They're and, only staying in the, uh, the hotels with the robes now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No more motel eats. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what I think is really happening. So I, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll get you to clarify what you mean by exuberance turning into depression. But I, I really just think right now there's a, there's, there's a disconnect happening and this correction will happen. We're just seeing trading volumes across everywhere in the market kind of get extremely low. This is a typical August. If 2020 didn't happen, this happened in 2019, 2018. I think this is a typical August, uh, and I think we'll start seeing some activity pick back up in September. So I don't want to say depression; I would say distraction. So fair point, and the the volume comment's interesting. Um, I think that it's from the sentiment. You know, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of sentiment in this market, and sentiment has really swung negative. 
from the the cannabis investors. Now, part of it, to your point, is just hey, volumes are low. It's summertime. It's August, right? The really the last chance people get to enjoy themselves before you know kids go back to school and post Labor Day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a fair point. Like, hey, this could just be a seasonal lull. Yeah, and uh, and also the sentiment turning negative. I think we talked about this last episode. Was that you know we've had the same four catalysts for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fatigue, right? So fatigue and distraction is what I think is really driving it, this 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 massive disconnect. Maybe not massive, but this disconnect that that exists right now. Yeah, that, it, it's a great point. And and the quote I wrote down here with regards to you know timing and sentiment is uh, it's it's an old quote from uh, the Office, right? And, and Andy. Um, Andy in the office, he says, you know, I wish there was a way to know you're living in the good old days uh, while it still is the good old days. Right. So the, the idea being that, you know, you don't realize how good you had it until it's gone. Right. And similarly in investing, you know, we only know when the market has bottomed in hindsight. You yeah. know, so our goal can never really be to catch the bottom. Um, I nor think, should it ever. Yeah, it just it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. So only when you're selling. Only when you're selling against the bottom. Yeah, well, I, trust me, I know that. <laughs> but the the point being, though, that that you know, like we have this kind of disease as as investors sometimes that you know, if something goes from two dollars to one dollar, right, we want to buy it at a dollar and then we want it to start going up again, right? We go, okay, thank you for going down. Now I've purchased you. Now it's time for you to go up again, right? Exactly. It, exactly. If it goes and to those 90, are the expectations, like you know. Yeah, if it goes to 90 cents, we're like, oh god, oh god, what is this thing doing? Right? Like I'm down 10% now. Like so but the reality is, you know, if you actually feel that it's worth, you know, let's say $2, then ultimately whether you bought it at a dollar or 90 cents or a buck 10, you're going to do really well when this thing mm-hmm. kind of comes back to where you see it being, right? You just have to have the stomach for the volatility. Um and it's one thing to say that it's another thing to actually live that, right? And see, ha- have... Um, I find that... Sorry, I, I was laughing just because, um, you know, I used to say that a lot. And then having lived it, it takes it takes a really strong stomach to stay in it. Totally, totally. And then you get people basically coming to a point where they go, okay, look, no mas. Yes, these stocks are great, um, you know, on, on earnings, uh, somebody said, yeah, these earnings are great, but they don't matter until we get up listing. Right. And I, I actually, I obviously disagree with that, but I, I agree. I'm going to agree with that a little bit. Right. And I'll, I'll get to that later. But the, the point being on the sentiment and the timing is that right now, the lack of interest, the lack of volume, Abbott, your point, and uh, the fact that, you know, there were people who got into this market in 2020 and 2021, they went nothing but up and, you know, it was their first time hearing about the SAFE Act, the first time hearing about the States Act, right? And um, they got really excited, as did we, as did you and I, and you and I were involved in some of the buying of, of February. But because of our experience and because we've been burned before, um, we were just more careful. That's all. That's the advantage that we had. And we didn't get spared from the carnage. We just took, you yeah. know, we just got a little bloody, right? We didn't get too bloody. Well, we took profits, right? Because the uh, the, the the reverse of, of what we we're talking about is true as well, right? It's hard to know when to sell when the markets are going up as well. So, you know, it's 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 extremely difficult to know when the bottom is, but when the markets are like when your stock is starting to rip up. So let's say using your two dollar, one dollar example, let's say you bought it at two dollars and all of a sudden tomorrow it goes to four dollars, you think the next day it's gonna go to eight dollars, right? You just think it's gonna continuously keep going up and you get that FOMO. Totally. So Totally, totally. And, and you know, if you, in the, in the case of MSOs, 
you know, yes, they all went crazy on me. And yes, I, you know, on paper and made a bunch of money, but I was like, I'm not going to sell these pre-uplisting, right? Like it just, it, it didn't make sense to do that. And it's like, hey, pr- hey, uplisting might be around the corner with, you know, the Senate and all that. So, you know, I, hey, I sold off some of the stocks I didn't like as much that were up, but the guys I really liked, I held on to. And then, you know, now we come back down, right? But the point I'm getting to here is what makes a golden age of investing? What makes golden opportunities? It's the lack of capital and the lack of of sort of sentiment. And the fact that when you're in the middle of um of kind of, you know, a soft market, even though it doesn't feel that good, the opportunities are usually good. In fact, when it feels too good, usually that means the opportunities are not so good because yeah. If everyone is excited to be pushing their money in the middle, that usually push price pushes prices up. It means you're not scrutinizing the deals hard enough, and it usually means that you're going to have an issue. Mm-hmm. Right? It usually means the market is overheated. Right now, you're seeing the other side of the coin. You know, the markets are soft. People are, you know, now looking at the downside, worried about what could happen. This is what creates good opportunities, typically speaking. Yeah, exactly. And right now, um, I think this is a very, very accurate title for, for for this episode, given the time where we are. This is the golden age. This is, you know, to quote uh, Andy from The Office, this is the good old days, right? Mm-hmm. I, I really think so. But are they coming to an end? We don't know, right? Because I think you said it earlier, and it's that, you know, we, we don't we don't try to time the bottom. We don't try to catch the bottom. We look for opportunities and we try to identify uncertainties. And right now, I like we both think that there are more opportunities and there are uncertainties. Yeah. And I mean, more than anything, like what I can't emphasize enough is the reason I always, even the companies I like, I try to pick apart the negatives like as much as I can because I try to figure out what are the risks, you know, that I can see that are in front of me. You know, then there's always risks that can come out of left field. Right. Um, and then am I being paid appropriately for the risk that I'm taking? You know, is the risk reward there? Right. And, and so coming now to, to earnings, what do we see across the board? We saw pretty strong top line sequential growth almost ubiquitously. And we saw it in some of the biggest companies. Cureleaf, you know, massive quarter over quarter growth, right? Mm-hmm. And almost everything was positive. But, Abby, this goes to an old quote of yours. Um, when, when the markets, uh, you know, you know, when, when it's not a momentum market, um, when it's, when it's a bull market, good news is amplified when it's a bear market, bad news is amplified. And when it's a bear market, good news is muted. And when it's a bull market, bad news is muted, right? Yes. Thank you. That summarized it perfectly. The point being that in this market, which is, I don't want to call it a bear market, but you know, let's, let's call it for argument's sake, a bear market. I'd call it a fatigued market. It's a hibernating market, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's the middle of the winter, you know, for the yeah, bears. Yeah. Exactly. But, but the point just being, um, the big top line beats, ah, okay. Kind of whatever people said, oh, that's nice. But then they, they looked at the margin compression and that's what everyone kind of honed in on. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's nothing. I'm saying, you know, as I talked about last time, the price war in Florida, that does concern me, right? Some other markets sort of compressing in terms of pricing, like mass, that does concern me. Well, I think, Manish, what you said about like five minutes ago about some of the risks that you tried to identify, mm-hmm. right? I think that's what's being done right now. People are looking for risks to identify. Good point. And this is one of those risks. Yeah, good good point. Good point. And, but, and they're picking out the negatives, and that's that's good. That's reasonable to do. 
But ultimately, you need to look at are you being paid appropriate for the risk? So if you're looking at you know company earnings and you're saying, look, I'm going to assume that the margins are going to stay this way forever and the company is going to double next year, uh, but you can't point to the footprint and show why, mm-hmm. right? Then I think that is problematic, right? Um, what I get excited about is the fact that, you know, let's look at two of the top companies in the space, Trulieve and Verano, okay? These two companies, phenomenal operators. They've been around a long time. Um, Verano, you know, privately has been around since 2014, uh, but publicly is, is relatively new. Both have different issues affecting them. Both are probably mostly technical factors as opposed to fundamental factors. And both of these companies now are trading at what I think is sub or close to eight times next year's EBITDA. So no matter, you know, if, if you want to build in, you know, conservativeness and contingencies and all that stuff, any way you slice it, you know, if you want to build in some buffer room and say it's eight to 10 times EBITDA for next year, for these size of companies, these quality of companies, these are cash flowing companies on the operating business, which feeds into, you know, the CapEx and expanding their moat. Um, that to me is very encouraging. I actually really, really like what I'm seeing in particular with these two companies. And I think these are the, you know, weirdness of the market or, or the, the issues these companies are dealing with have created some really fascinating opportunities here. Right. And one thing I do want to note as well, as you're, as we're talking about this fatigued market, usually when you see fatigued markets like this, uh, those multiples tend to compress. They tend to come down as well, right? Not not only see, we're not talking about margin compression, but we're talking about multiple compression. Totally. So if, if this was a bit like a, a, a bull market, you could see expansion happening in the multiple. So that eight times could turn into 10 times, right? In conjunction, that EBITDA growth could also go higher as well. So let's say whatever the 2022 guidance is that you've you've given, mm-hmm. um, you're you could be you could be multiplying it by a higher multiple in a bull market. Totally. So your your point basically, which is a great one, is that look, it it's you know you could generate one dollar of EBITDA, but the question is what multiple do you put on it, right. right? And if you remember back to the last episode, you know, hey, what's wrong with my weed stocks? A couple months ago, people were saying, well, GTI is worth. Uh, 20, I think I remember if it was 20 or 30 times, 23 EBITDA. Mm-hmm. So a dollar of EBITDA in 23, we multiply that by 30, and that's how we're going to get to our number here, our valuation, which was a big number on GTI, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, what we're saying, and, and I'm going to run you through the numbers, is I think that Truly and Verano, two different companies, but two both excellent companies, are trading at sub 10, maybe even sub 8 times, uh, what I think is a relatively conservative EBITDA. Right. And that to me is really exciting because A, they have the opportunity to outperform on EBITDA over time. And B, very, very likely to have multiple expansion, um, you know, even just quarter over quarter as, as attention comes back to the space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And exactly. I've talked about, you know, when the market is hot, I sometimes go to the edges because, you know, you can find interesting opportunities. But right now, you know, the opportunities created, especially in these two companies, uh, is in is enormous and extraordinarily attractive and the largest companies sometimes get really a lot of the benefits right for sure for sure and so, sorry go ahead yeah i was just gonna say so so uh, we can actually go through the numbers and i can kind of walk you through what is you know i'm gonna call this napkin math and uh this is not super intense modeling 
But I think this will just show you how I'm thinking about it in terms of very high level numbers. And it will, you know, kind of illustrate the point of, of how I'm thinking about um, buying these two companies. Okay. So let's start with, um, let's start with Trulieve. So Trulieve basically did $90 million of EBITDA this quarter. Okay. Um, Harvest, which they're going to be merging with, did about 28 million of EBITDA. So call that 30, you know, for easy numbers. And together we get about 120 million of EBITDA for Q2 pro forma. Okay. And you should look at them as a combined company because that deal's almost certainly going to close and the closing is kind of coming up. So if you multiply that out by four, you get 480 million of EBITDA, right? Right. So the question is, if you look forward a year, kind of where do you see this company going? Now, if you look at analyst estimates, they have a combined EBITDA for next year of, you know, kind of close to 650 or $700 million, which by the way, is a mind numbingly large number, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and remember, one of the things I really like about this company is it's heavy on the cash flow. So it's really able to make a lot of operational cash flow, which then they can invest in their footprint again. So they don't have to take on equity or debt or whatever. Uh, you know, they're, they're very cash rich. So what I'm doing here is conservatively saying, look, next year, I believe, you know, let's say instead of it's 650 or 700, let's say it's just 600 million of EBITDA, which would be like a 25% bump from where they are today. Um, and, and it doesn't, they don't have to hit 600 for the whole year. We could just say a year from now, they're run rating 600 million. Right. Okay. So okay. over a year, they grow EBITDA by 25%. That's probably pretty conservative. But again, they're, you know, I am concerned about this pricing thing in Florida. I want to build in a margin of safety. So I'm going to say 600 million of EBITDA. The combined company, you know, when you stick truly and harvest together, should have about 180 million shares outstanding. Okay. I, I, might be a little bit off on this, but again, we're just spitballing here. Um, so let's take uh, today, which is Monday night, stocks closed at about $28 US, all right? I multiply that by 180 shares, million shares outstanding. I get about a $5 billion company, okay? So take a $5 billion company, divide it by 600 million of EBITDA, you know, sometime next year, you get eight and a half times 22 EBITDA. And I'm running, again, a pretty, I think, conservative number, you know, this time next year or by the end of next year, they could be run rating higher than that. So built in some some margin of safety here, right? Mm -hmm. So there you go. Companies running at eight and a half times. You know, if you want to like play around and do some sensitivity, hey, where do you get to eight times? You go eight times 600, that's 4.8 billion divided by 180. You get 2650, let's call it USD. So at 2650 USD, um, you're eight times EBITDA, probably conservatively. And I think that is exceptionally attractive uh, for these types of companies. And, and for reference, Cureleaf and GTI are probably trading closer to like 14 times next year's EBITDA, right? So you're eight versus 14. There's You're being paid tremendously well for whatever risk you're taking here with Trulief. and And I really like that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And if the market heats up, that multiple could go up as well, right? Yeah, and, and that could it could go up for GTI and Cureleaf as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not I'm not knocking mm -hmm. those companies. I'm just pointing out on a relative value basis, like there's a lot of room to run here um, for Trulief. For sure, and growth stocks typically don't trade at an eight times multiple either, right? I mean, in today's market, nothing trades. <laughs> <at an eight times laughs> yeah, that's true. Even a multiple, right? 
So, so yeah, f- fair point. Now let's actually talk about the risk, right? So I pointed out the trial as a risk. I got out of the way. Um, you know, we did the Q1 review a couple weeks ago. I had a bunch of harvest. I ended up selling it pretty soon after because I just got so excited about Verano and I wanted to have, you know, cash and I wanted to avoid the trial just in case. And so here we are, right? Um, and and by the way, I mean, I, I just, you know, quick comment. I, I can't believe, like, I can't imagine what Kim's going through right now. Like, uh, you know, it's just to have a family member, you know, your husband um, who's going to jail. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic, really. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's somebody's father, somebody's husband, somebody's family. Um, and, you know, throughout all of it, I mean, she had her earnings call, I think, the day before. Like, you could just tell this person is made of steel. Like, yeah, Kim is going to figure out a way to navigate this. She's going to get through this. Uh, I, I have a very high degree of confidence in that. And so what's left is to kind of, you know, chance what the risks are. What could the negative be for truly buying it today at, at, with, you know, with this um, this negative attached to it. And, and I, I honestly think the risks are limited. I think that it comes down to, do you expect there to be some kind of, um, you know, punitive action to the company with regards to their Florida licensing? And I don't think so. I think it's just too far in the past. It's, it's, you know, tough for anyone to prove anything out. Um, so I don't see any structural risk, except if this ends up becoming a hot button local political issue, uh, remember that I, I believe the state could always break up vertical integration, right? If they wanted to sort of stick it to the industry, um, I believe they could do that. They're already issuing like 20 new licenses. So that's kind of a, that's already in the works, uh, but they could break, break up vertical. Uh, but again, I think this is a long shot. Uh, and, and that wouldn't be the end of the business, by the way. It would be, you know, just an, just a potential negative. Okay, gotcha. And so the risk that you outlined here, but you've got trial risk. We talked about pr- uh, price wars. Uh, in the past, you know, punitive action to the company, vertical integration risk, and then license deflation. Now, do you think that that's like, that's, that's five risks? Well, no, sorry, you, you conflated a lot of those together, right? So the trial is done, right? That risk has already happened. Okay. Right. Um, the, the punitive risk, the punitive thing would be, you know, breaking up vertical integration. That's kind of my theory there. Okay, so is that's that, yeah, they're, they're like together, right? The punitive, if they're going to punish the company, they could break up vertical uh, that would, yeah, okay. and that would be under the guise of, Hey, we want to open the market up for patients. We want to make, you know, make it more fair or whatever. Right. Again, this, this is all just spitballing hypotheticals here. Right. And so, okay. So then that, the factors are pretty much three, three major risks, right? So those three major risks, you know, uh, you mentioned that GTI is trading at 14 times. So let's say you're, p- you're pretty much picking up truly about a 40% dis- or four, four times, like 40% cheaper than what G- GTI is trading at. And from your perspective, that is justified with the risks that you're taking, right? Yeah. I mean, the only major risk is, does it somehow impact the Florida licensing? And it, the likely answer is no. And the, the you know, so let's say that's an 80, 90% chance of nothing happening at all, right? Right. And maybe there's an outside chance, like 10% that vertical gets broken up. Like right. again, just spitballing, and that wouldn't be the you know the worst thing ever. But I I've talked about before. I don't know how that impacts the company, right? I don't think it's positive, but it might not be so negative either. Right. right. What about what about like recreational happening and, and even more license coming online? So now you talk uh, about like the twenty new licenses mm-hmm. that are coming. So more licenses are coming, right? That's mm-hmm. just is what it is. And but without with vertical still staying there, it's going to be really hard for those licenses to succeed. Right. Like that's my way of looking at it. I just would not invest in any of those licenses if they came and look, and they're going to be looking for equity, by the way. Um, and it'll be very hard to invest in any of them, my opinion, because the 
you know, truly and, has and sorry, such a head start. Yeah, exactly. And, and that makes it that that's extremely a huge advantage in, in a limited license state. And but it doesn't truly have that harvest. It, once the merger goes through, won't truly have like a harvest grow license that they'd have to get rid of. Yeah. So important to remember, there's only in, in Florida that you get one license. Right. And the license is to be a vertically integrated player. So right. it's not like you have a grow license and a retail license. You have one license, which allows you to do grow, do processing and do retail, right? So they can do asset transfers. Um, you know, Liberty once sold one of their grows to somebody else. That's totally allowed. Um, so so they'll uh, essentially absorb Harvest's assets and then they can just sell the paper license because they'll have two licenses, which is redundant. They can sell one license. Maybe they'll have to sell off a grow, a processing, and a retail with it. So it's like a complete package. Uh, but they should be able to absorb har- Harvest assets. Like, if it, okay. I don't think I fully follow there. So they'd be able to absorb basically, Harvest, harvest basically, assets. Yes. So would they be able to take, for example, Harvest existing cultivation and put it under their license? Yeah, so like in in Florida, you don't only have one grow. Like you can have mo- like ten grows in different. Oh, and locations. they don't have to. Okay, in different locations. Okay, I didn't know. And that. they all they all just operate off the same one license that you right, have. Right. Right. Okay. Right? I, I thought it was like here in like Canada, where it was like you know. No, in other states too, it's not like that. Like the license is attached to the grow, right? But okay, in Florida, it's just unique structure. Okay. Yeah, Florida is just a unique place, right? So gotcha. Uh, and by the way, again, all up in the air, right? I, I I can't tell you that for sure. It's just that's how it, I think about it, how it's been explained to me. So. Um, now the, the, if you want to think about further kind of negatives and how this could impact the stock going forward, mm-hmm. look, I, I mean, this could, uh, be a stain on the company for institutional investors, right? It could be a, um, uh, what and, could the trial, well, the outcome, right? The fact that you've got this individual who did, you know, don't get confused. I mean, this guy did a lot of construction for the company, like $200 million worth of construction, by the way, he clearly did a good job because, <sighs> you know, no, I, I mean it. I yeah. mean, this company is, has succeeded because of its ability to move quickly and efficiently, right? So so clearly, I mean, they were doing something right there, um, but there's now this perceived connection, right? Uh, mm-hmm. th- there is a connection. Sorry, I mean, it's not perceived. But, you know, then you get pe- you get institutional investors who might just say, look, I don't want to bother with this, right? I'll, I'll right. rather go for a GTI or somebody else, right? So that, that, again, that's a potential asterisk you have to put there. And then M&A, right? Does somebody look at that and say, oh, I don't know. This is, you know, this doesn't align with my values or whatever. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So again, I'm just trying to point out all the potential negatives. And what I'm telling you is when I look at all of that holistically, um, I'm okay with it. I think this is at 2650, which is not quite there, but it's close enough. I think it's really exciting what you're seeing. Uh, leave open the possibility that another shoe could always drop some other article could come out. Who knows what could happen? So I'm not calling a bottom here. I'm just pointing out that this is a monster company that will have a lot of M&A to digest with Harvest and it'll be messy. Uh, but if you can fast forward a year, you know, 18 months, uh, I think you're going to be really happy if you buy it at you know today's prices. Right. And look, the justification makes sense too, right? The way that you've broken it down. So you, you like, even if it does come back, let's say it does pull back a little bit, you can look back and say, okay, look, this is what my thought process was. And it does make sense because that is very important too, right? There are times where, you know, you enter a stock or you enter a company and you look back and you say, oh my God, like, why did I enter? And then you go back and you say, okay, at the time, this was the information that was out there. Mm-hmm. Abby whispered it into my ear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Picks them up. Yeah. But so, so I, look, I mentioned this last episode and, and I, I want to emphasize it again, like, 
uh, I think it's really important as an investor to figure out, you know, what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And, you know, I truly feel I'm not being cute here. I, I truly feel I'm not very good in markets that are rapidly going up where people are just pricing in tons of optimism. And I'm significantly better. I have an advantage in markets that are going down, right? Because I can take a step back like TrueLeaf here and say, okay, I think I understand why it's going down, right? I think I understand the, the negativity surrounding it. I got out of the way, so I'm not feeling the pain of it going down. And now I can look at it objectively and say, hey, at this number, I think it's actually pretty cheap. And I mm-hmm. think that I can, you know, um, I think at this number, I'm getting paid really well for the risk that I'm taking. Right. For sure. So now let's compare that. Okay, so that's truly even a nutshell. Let's compare that to Verano. Okay, Verano, um, exceptional operators. You know, came out in a super hot market. Uh, did not necessarily, you know, uh, catch retail investors' attention. Uh, just, you know, definitely caught institutional attention, but maybe didn't have that same level of connection with the retail investor, uh, which I think was a mistake. And also, you know, this is a market now where you have a lot of companies, right? You've got all these different new issues and smaller companies and whatever, and yet we have a shrinking pool of buyers because of decustodying and, um, you know, people only have so much attention, et cetera, et cetera. So stock has only gone down. We've had a huge unlock that just happened, right? 50% of the shares just came free trading. So you have a ton of supply and you have limited demand. And at a certain point, MSOS was buying. I'm sure they're going to keep buying, but they're having their own inflow outflow issues. So they can't buy every day. So what you're left with is a company putting up, uh, you know, giant numbers, 200 million of revenue at uh, 80 million of EBITDA. But their EBITDA went from, you know, 50%, 52% to 40%. So now people are like, ooh, is it going to go down to 30%, right? And the company's saying, no, 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 we're going back up. We're not going down. Okay. But the technical dynamic that has been created here because of the, you know, if you call it the oversupply, the unlock of shares is pretty significant. So if we want to do math on this one, they did, um, you know, 80 million of, of um, EBITDA this quarter. They say they're going to exit the year at a run rate of 1.1 billion. And they're going to be back towards more of their regular profile of, you know, 40, 45%. So if you take 45% EBITDA, that's 500 million of EBITDA. Um, you know, let's be kind of conservative and let's say it's, let's say all of next year, they'll only do 500. Okay. So that end of year guidance kind of that I'm spitballing here, we'll, we'll say that's the whole, you know, next year. Okay. And remember, New Jersey is going to be a huge driver for these guys. So now we've got 315 million shares out. We've got a stock that's 1250 US roughly. That's $4 billion. $4 billion divided by 500, that's eight times EBITDA. So this is pretty rough napkin math here. You know, this is doesn't involve a lot of heavy modeling. I do need to know the fully diluted share counts and the EBITDA numbers roughly. Um, but again, we're at eight times EBITDA, and this is pretty conservative. I think there's room for upside here. For sure, and I, I still don't understand why. Like, why did you pick the uh, the five hundred? So the uh, they guided to exiting the year at one point one billion yeah. uh, run rate. And you don't think you don't have confidence that management's going to hit like somewhere close to that? 
No, but I did. That's 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 the revenue. Sorry, the one one is revenue. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Right. The so then five hundred. Gotcha. Yeah, and then so the so the EBITDA. Okay. Let's say you even take forty percent, which is your current EBITDA. That's yeah. like four forty, four fifty, and then you tack on another fifty million for growth next year. Right, right, right. And then and you're using like a forty forty five percent gross margins or even a margins there. Yeah, not even actually. That's that's just on the on the exiting the year run rate. Okay. You get what I'm saying? We're not even talking yeah. about you know, the growth next year. So, so, you know, in both of these examples, you can see I've been relatively conservative, right? In terms of, you know, growth. Um, and yet, like, we're still at eight times EBITDA. So what that tells me is that from what I've seen, these probably, these companies are probably going to outperform and they're mm-hmm. probably going to, you know, end up sh- uh, overshooting kind of what I'm showing here. Um, and then, you know, not only do you get EBITDA expansion, you get multiple expansion because people get excited again, right? So it, it's a funny thing to think about, Abby, but to have two top quality MSOs, both of them producing significant operating cash flow and reinvesting it into their business and have them trading kind of, you know, <laughs> where you see close to what you see single state operators trade at. Yeah. Uh, this is a hell of an opportunity. For sure. For sure. And listen, like you said it the best there. We'll, 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 where, you'll, where you'll get EBITDA, um, we'll see uh, a growth on, on the EBITDA multiple as well as the multiple itself could go up. That's where you get like hockey stick like charts, right? Totally. I mean, if you if you take 500 million of EBITDA for next year and then they do 550, I mean, that's 10% right there. Yeah. Right. And if they beat like that, and again, this isn't even, you know, my numbers are way lower than what the analysts are saying, right? Mm-hmm. But so if they, if they, you know, do 550 and then the multiple goes from, you know, eight to 12, uh, by the way, that's not how you bid on multiples work. People look at the year after. So they look at 23. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you're going off an even bigger number and using a multiple, right? So yeah. And if, and if management uh, executes that alleviates, that alleviates a lot of the risk from, from a lot of the other people who are modeling it too, right? If ma- say that again. If management executes, so for example, let's say they do hit that 1.1 billion in yep. top line, mm-hmm. right? That just further reinforces how good of a management team that is, because there is an right. opportunity where management misses, and then totally. they put out guidance, and it's like, ah, well, they missed last time. Are they going to hit right. this guidance? Right. Right. Yeah. Fair point. That's that's a great point. So that so what I'm getting at is when when I look at those opportunities, it's not just that these are great companies, which they are, and I can understand the negatives that have happened to them. Right. That's that's the beauty I think of this kind of perfect storm on both these companies. It's that uh, the fact that these are going to be two of the largest companies in the space, uh, really, really exciting to be able to buy big scaled players with cash flow who don't need to take on dilutive financing mm-hmm. um, at value multiples, like real, real value multiples. I mean, that to me is exceptionally exciting. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, look, again, we go back to the title of it being the golden age. This is a prime example of why this is the golden age. It's a golden opportunity, right? And, and the key thing to understand, too, is that as the um, market has become more fragmented, you're seeing a disconnection. So GTI, which is a phenomenal company and has done everything right, uh, you know, they they their stock is held up a lot better than Truly and Verano. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's you know, you're getting a little bit more hair with those with these two, but when you look at the pricing disconnect, you know it's it's one of those things where 
you know, I don't want to be too cute and try to sell GTI to buy these because you never know how things play out in capital markets. Um, but you really start to think about some of your picks and say, okay, where do you reallocate, right? How do you, yeah. when do you, how do you decide to push the chips in the middle? And the first move for me is I've been holding some cash back, holding some cash back. Let's go. Now I'm not well, saying you it's had, the bottom. You, I was going to say you had cash yeah. because you took profits too, right? Totally. Totally. And, and by the way, I take losses too. Like if I have a name, <laughs> yeah. I, if I have, that's if called I had sell discipline. A, that's that, that's right. That's called sell discipline, and uh, it, it's it's good that you do right. If it hits a target where you're mm. like, look, this doesn't make sense anymore. It is okay to take some things. It is it is okay to take losses. Well, look, and, and sometimes you put on you know uh, you know a trade or like an idea, and then you know maybe it goes sideways or doesn't go that well, and and then then an opportunity presents itself, mm-hmm. right? And now I'm seeing that now. I, I've been going pretty hard at Verano, and I'm going to keep going. Right, we're truly even. I'm a little more careful getting in, um, but I'm definitely eyeing it. You know, I've, I've gone through my math here. If it hits that twenty six fifty, you know, I'll, I'll be getting in as well. Right, I'll be be. Um, uh, and now both these companies have a lot of M and A to sort through. Truly is going to have, I think, more M and A to sort through because Harvest is just a bigger company they're digesting. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's going to be opportunities to stumble. You know, there could be other things that come up. Um, so I'm not calling bottom, right? I'm not saying market's about to turn. You're going to buy it at a dollar and it's going to go right up. Like this is, you could be buying it at a dollar and it could go down to 75 cents. Um, but ultimately, like, I think these things are worth a lot more. And I've gone through the math with you. You know, I typically use 15 yep. times EBITDA multiples on on looking forward. Um, and I think these companies have huge 22 growth ahead of them and beyond, right? And they still have room for M&A to kind of tack on um, you know, assets like, you know, for truly getting into New Jersey, getting into New York for Verano, getting into New York, I think is pretty key. Uh, so, so there's still room for these companies to grow. Uh, and I think, I think we're going to see them do strategic M&A as things go forward. Gotcha. And when you're saying truly, as your, 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 your entry point there, um, you're obviously talking about the OTC ticker, right? And not the CSC. Yeah. So I, I take us dollars. Exactly. Yeah. Almost all, I think all these numbers have been us dollars yeah. and, um, I think about the. I think it's just easier to think about in U.S. dollars now because they're U.S. companies. Mm-hmm. So, just to kind of close off this point is is basically, I think what gives us the edge right now is the fact that we have a a good understanding. We have a good amount of conviction because we've been through the spin cycle a couple of times, um, and we're able to move on it quickly. Like I see this. I've been doing the math. It's been a couple days, and now I'm like, yeah. Let's go. Like I'm, I'm ready with, with kind of what I'm seeing. Um, now, again, there's still issues here. There's still things I don't always understand. Like, for example, Harvest just did a sale lease back with IAPR for Maryland. I don't understand why they did that. Truly has like all the money in the world. I don't understand why um, Harvest is doing that. Right. But it just goes to the point of, you know, golden age. What makes the golden age is a lack of capital and mm-hmm. cash is still being burned through M&A 280E and CapEx. You have new markets opening up like New Jersey and New York. You need to expand cultivation. Um, so nobody wants to tap the equity markets right now because of how soft they are. Um, they have been tapping the debt markets. That's very strong. And clearly there's still some demand for sale leaseback. So it shows you that the, the capital markets are a little bit soft, which is usually where you get the best deals. Right. And then last point is in terms of inefficiencies. The episode we did last year, I talked about how I felt the private deals 
were a lot more attractive than the public deals. And at that time, I had just finished doing Ascend and Pharmacan privately. Um, and now I feel like we've we've crossed. The public deals are more attractive <laughs> than the private deals. Which, you know, originally, if you just hear that statement, it doesn't make any sense. But if you die, like if you dig a little bit deeper into it, you can kind of rationalize it. That's what we were doing before. So do you want to kind of go into that? Yeah, I mean, look, it, very basically, uh, you had a lot of capital raising in Q1, not only publicly, but privately, because, you know, the, the value shot up and then private operators had a ton of capital come in, right? And Abby, I think you were the one who said demand for private deals is insatiable, right, back then? Yeah. So they they were able to fill their coffers, right? They were able to raise a bunch of money. Um, and then now, like a lot of private guys, they don't want to take the write down. They don't want to have a down round um, and, and raise, you know, at a 35, 40% discount to six months ago. Exactly. So, so if they can afford to wait, they'll wait. And if they can afford to take sale leaseback or debt instead, they'll do it. Right. And, th- and that's a huge advantage to being private is the fact that you don't have to mark to market every second. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so <clears throat> basically your valuation for, for private companies, your valuation is, or your market cap is based off of your last round of financing. Right. Yeah, or if for your sure. peers are fine, or if your peers are financing, I mean, you, obviously people do use public comps as well, but like you said, if you don't typically, if you don't technically need the capital right now, uh, or there's other avenues, which we haven't seen, you know, two years ago, we, you know, the debt markets were, were, were insane. You wouldn't want to be taking debt and cannabis. Yeah. Right? It's a lot more expensive. Yeah. Exactly. And so like now, you know, equity is not the only way to raise capital in the private markets. You have debt, you've got sale leasebacks. So now you've got options and you've got the optionality of whether or not you want to actually tap the equity too. Right. So that's why you're not seeing that same value in the private markets. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I get it. If you're a private company, you don't want to do a down round. It's, it's not a good look. And no, no, exactly. And, you know, you could talk to a private company and say, look, like I would like to invest. I want to invest at, you know, 40% discount to February. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would probably agree with you. Yeah, look, I mean, based on where things are trading, that's where that's where we should raise. But they'll just say, "I'm not going to do it." Yeah, and we don't need to do it right now. Yeah, like like they would they would look for any way not to have to do that, basically, mm-hmm. right? Whereas with the public markets, like you know, they, they don't have that. Like they're not raising money, right? This is this is these are secondary shares being traded every day. But people want to show up and sell TrueLeaf today, and that'll happen every single day. And if if the price is attractive which I think it is, then, you know, let's go, right? And same thing with Verano. And the key point is uh, I'm able to make these big bets, certainly in Verano. I haven't done it yet in Truly, but, you know, I have the willingness to do it. But um, we're able to make these big bets because we have the conviction, right? Whether we're right or wrong is a a topic for the future, but um, we have the conviction to be able to do it. For sure. And we're also spotting some inefficiencies that we think are actually, you know, opportunities for us right now. Totally. Like, like the summer lulls, I think is a great, is it's a great buying opportunity. Yep. Yep. That's a, that's a totally fair point. So kind of closing it off here. Uh, I mean, I think when we talk about inefficient markets, you know, and, and lack of information, I think one thing I, I just want to kind of caution people against uh, uh, again, is this idea of echo chambers and, you know, I, I got a lot of respect for the the MSO gang and, and the fact that they really helped push the narrative and the, the information and help people understand what MSOs are, right? And, and back when people were buying LPs instead of MSOs, um, I think these guys and gals were crucial to getting the story out. But I think one of the negatives is that 
there's this, this real all or nothing binary mentality where it's like, you know, Hey, if you say anything negative or raise any concern about any of these companies, you know, you're a basher, you're a, you're a, you know, a short, yeah, um, show me your short position. Yeah. Show me your, yeah, exactly. Which hedge fund are you working for today? Yeah, huh? exactly. Like, yeah. You know, oh, Citadel trying to sneak into the MSO gang. Nice try. <laughs> and it's it's just it's not a good way to to behave as an investor. It's 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 an inefficiency in the market that I see, and sometimes it's frustrating. But then you take a deep breath and you go, look, the the inefficiency here is actually our opportunity. Exactly. And the, and the mistakes that I'm seeing other people make, you know, we were there. We we made all of those mistakes <laughs> and more. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And, and it is, it is within that inefficiency. That's, that's where you'll uncover some of the, some of the best opportunities, right? I mean, I, I think so. Right. And I think that's what we're, what we're hearing here today. So we'll close it off here with just two questions. Um, the first one comes from, uh, Aiden from Boston and Aiden said, uh, Aiden wants to put 60% of, uh, their, you know, cannabis allocation into the ETF MSOS. And then kind of sprinkle the rest into some tier two names. Um, but the question was, is that the way to go? Or um, should I just buy two to three top tier ones um, instead of, you know, the MSOS allocation? So just kind of an allocation question. And uh, what I would say is this. I think MSOS is really cool for what they've put together with regards to being, you know, NASDAQ listed and bringing the capital in. Um, I think talking about inefficiencies, we've noticed a lot of inefficiencies with MSOS. And one of the problems they seem to have is like when they want to buy 200,000 shares of Verano, um, like they did on Friday, um, you know, we always joke, like we can tell when it's MSOS buying because, you know, hedge fund Steve was the one who pointed this out to me. There's probably some kind of system where when they say we're going to buy 200,000 shares, they have to buy that amount that day. It goes to the trader and because of the way the swap is, they have to buy that amount of shares. So what you'll see is that at the end of the day, the stock price will jump 3% in the last 30 minutes of trading, right? Very weird. Doesn't make any sense. It's mm-hmm. just because of MSOS and, and the inefficiency of the swaps and stuff they're using. Um, over time, that does add up. It makes the market very weird, but it also is hurting their performance. So if you're, you know, willing to do the work and pay attention, you can literally replicate, you know, their top picks, um, their top three or four or five picks in your, you know, in your personal account. I think there's value to them because I think they're smart managers and I think they're doing a good job. Uh, but there is some inefficiency there with with how it operates. Right. I, I would say also like um, in terms of like your allocation. I get it. Like you think kind of, okay, I put 60% into this and th- it also depends name by name really on allocation. Right. Um, so keep in mind when you buy MSOS, you're not just buying the big boys. You're also buying a bunch of other companies as well. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're basically getting an index that's supposed to replicate what the U S MSOS market's supposed to be. Right. 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 But actively managed, actively managed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing I, I would say, obviously Aiden, you know, I don't know you, you don't know us. <clears throat> and so, obviously do your own diligence, even if you hear from a podcast. Um, One thing that's very important when you're looking at just composing a portfolio, and I don't know if this is your entire allocation or if this is your entire portfolio or or what capital this actually is. I'm assuming, I'm going to make a big assumption here that this is a risk uh, capital that you want to dabble just into cannabis and, you know, your safe assets or your safe assets. You always got to look at correlation. Um, If you're buying, 
like I think this is what Manish you were alluding to. If you buy MSOS and then you start buying, you know, the tier like the the second quartile, third quartile, or tier two, tier three names, um, if there's a correction and every single thing sort of drops, you're not really building in any insurance there. Um, and if there is an uptick and you know MSOS goes up, but the tier two and tier three names don't go up as much as the tier one names, um, you know you're not getting the upside as well. So correlation is really is really important to, to sort of take into consideration. Now, I mean, it's really difficult to find correlation in the cannabis market. Um, I haven't really been able to, I, you know, there's software out there, or there, there's, there's programs out there that you can kind of just put all your names into and it'll, it'll back, go back to, you know, it'll go back to like chart movements and whatnot of the stock and then kind of give back to you. Okay, this, the, you know, there, there's a correlation number that you'll get. It's, it's usually done out of one. Um, and you can tell if something is um, is, is positively correlated or, ne- or negatively correlated. So keep that into consideration as well. Yeah. And last point on that is, you know, another idea is, um, you know, you might just, you might not want all things that are correlated, right? Like you might look at it. Oh, no, you don't want things that are correlated. Right. That's what right, I'm trying right. to say. You right. Don't so you're, want- you're looking for things that aren't correlated so you can have some diversification yeah. essentially. And, and, right? and yeah, exactly. And and like, I, I, I always got this mixed up. There's positively correlated, negatively correlated, and uncorrelated. Right. Right. So you don't want things that are negatively correlated either, because that means if one thing goes up, the other thing goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have things that are positively correlated, they both go up and they both go down at the same time. You want things right. that are uncorrelated, where if truly moves, you know, it doesn't affect GTI or whatever example. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I would say also like just thinking like that's a very technical way of looking at it, right? Um, if you think like kind of more strategically, like just broader picture, ignoring the technicals for a second, then uh, one way to look at it is look, like you're investing in a lot of OTC um, MSOs, right? You're investing in a lot of companies that are are pink sheets, and one day they'll get uplisted, and and hopefully you'll you know enjoy making a lot of money. But until then, you know, like like slow uplisting is sort of a risk factor, right? Or or let's say a, a potential negative. So how do you hedge against that? Well, one way I've done it is to look at Nasdaq names, and to look at hey, if if uplisting takes a long time. You know what's interesting on the Nasdaq side. What would actually benefit, for example, IIPR? Um, although it's you know to me it's too richly priced, but that is a name that will benefit the longer uplisting takes because there'll be a source of capital. Right. right? It, prime example is they just did the deal with Harvest, soon to be True Leave for the Maryland asset. So uh, you know that's another way of thinking about it in terms of correlation is like it doesn't have to be technical; it could be strategic. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good way to look at it as well. Okay, last question. It's really a comment um, that that somebody left, and it was it was left from uh, somebody who I won't say their name, but um, you, you know I, I I don't know this person personally, but I've seen their comments enough to know that they're a pretty thoughtful cannabis investor. So I thought it was worth kind of addressing this. And the point was basically last episode uh, when we we did the episode, you know, uh, what's wrong with my weed stocks, which is you know kind of having fun, tongue in cheek. The point was, look, I agree that you guys have pointed out a lot of efficiencies and a lot of mistakes that retail investors make, but uh, the person felt that this was, you were being condescending. Basically, we were kind of talking down to the average retail investor, um, you know, when when we were kind of saying, look, like these people make all these mistakes and that's why the market is the way they, it is. As we sit in our ivory towers, <laughs> <laughs> if they could really see where we were recording, they'd be like, there's no condescension yeah. here. <laughs> I was going to say, listen, I don't think I'm better than anybody except for Abby. I definitely know I'm better than Abby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And ditto to that. Yeah. <laughs> Vice versa. So, yeah. so look, I, I wanted to address this because, um, you know, look, there's a lot of different ways of, of getting the points across, right? And sometimes it comes with sugar and sometimes it comes with salt. And it, it, it 
alternates between, you know, kind of how we feel and, and what we feel is the most effective. But I will personally take responsibility and say, look, I, I really apologize if it ever comes across as condescending. If it feels personal when we're talking about, you know, the mistakes we think people are making, it's because it is deeply personal. And because because we've, it's because we've made them. <laughs> yeah, it's us, right? That's, we are the average retail investor. <laughs> that's the point. That's the point is, yeah. we, you know, and, and the more we dig into this and we say, we talk about, you know, retail versus institutional, the, what you learn, you know, when you talk to some of these people who are managing, you know, billions of dollars is they're still people, you know, yep. they, they are, are affected by the emotions of what's happening. Um, and, and they make, you know, the same mistakes other people make. They, they, you know, so what you kind of, I think a huge takeaway from this sector is that retail is not a dirty word. Some of the best investors in this space um, are the retail ones. Some of the worst investors in this space <laughs> include Constellation Brands who wrote a $5 billion check uh, <laughs> into Canopy and burned yeah. most of it away, right? Yeah. So so the point being that um, it is personal for us. You know, we want to we want to get the thoughts across and, you know, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's frustrating, sometimes it's, you know, tongue in cheek and we like to have fun, um, but it's always meant to be, you know, with the goal of helping share information, never to to make people feel bad. Um, but at the same time, like you can't really expect us to sit by when we see people making mistakes and not point out the fact that we do think they are mistakes. Yeah, for sure. And also if it does ever feel like we're trying to make someone feel bad, um, it's probably because we feel bad because we're risking <laughs> our own capital. <laughs> That's why, like if there's a day and you're like, Oh man, like these guys seem down in the dump. It's because, because we are, we are down in the dumps. <laughs> yeah. Cause they, they didn't hear the 30 minute, uh, uh, pre-conversation that you and I had where I'm yeah, like, exactly. listen, Abby, or, it's okay. You know, yeah. you're going to be all right. Like, like, like just change your landlords here right now. I don't know. The, the lights are off. The internet's not working anymore. I'm hotspotting my phone. So it's like, listen, Abby, we're going to help you out. We're going to change your phone number. We're going yeah. to bill. We're going to dodge the bill collectors until the market comes back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The margin calls are now forwarded to some other phone number. <laughs> but, but look, I, I mean, I think we try to be as honest as possible. Um, you know, when I, I still wear the fact that I dump my portfolios at the lows in March, right? I bring it up again and again because it's important to like remind yourself of these things. Like we don't have a subscription service to sell. You know, we don't have a newsletter to sell. We don't have a course to sell you. Like we, this is a labor of love. We do it because it's fun because we enjoy it. Um, and so it gives us a chance to also like not BS people and be honest and say, Hey, I sold truly that, $10 a share. And I'm talking about buying it back at 26 now. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, like th these are things that, yeah, you could just pretend they never happened and you could pretend you're the greatest investor of all time. Or, you know, you could try to bring these things up and, and try to learn from your mistakes. Um, and, and the number one thing I hope that, you know, people who are getting hit right now, who are get who are hurting right now with real money they're putting in, you know, and, and maybe they overextended themselves. The number one thing is I hope they learn. I hope they learn their lesson. And I hope that, you know, the next spin of the wheel, they don't repeat the same mistakes. And they see other people doing it and they go, no, 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 no. I did that, you know, two years ago, but I'm not doing that this time. Right, right. And it's very important. 
it's 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 extremely important it's extremely important to have that that lens when you look back on your trades right and like manisha i was telling you i've got a couple trades that when i got caught up in the hypes in february and i started going into just various sectors that were all momentum driven Mm -hmm. and there's one that i'm down like 90 percent on i'm not Mm -hmm. even kidding you and i i've sold most of it but like 10 shares and i'm keeping those 10 shares so that's a constant reminder it's a line item on my trading account yeah and and what do you what happens what does that remind you of Oh, to do it again. <laughs> no, it's just, it, it, it reminds me of not to get caught in the hype. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're constantly trying to remind yourself of the lessons that you should have learned by now. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? That line, the, I guarantee you a year from now, there'll be another line item underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens because like, you know, it's human emotion. It's human nature, right? And, and, that's what we're always trying to overcome as we as we figure this game out. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, that's it. Uh, thank you very much for listening, as always. Until next time, cinpodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.